we have spent the past two years creating a series of episodes for our passion project. Now we've tried everything we could think of to get some kind of financial support before we launched. And nothing has worked. So here we are. We've got eight episodes ready of what will be the first season of our series called The Remarkable Ones. And now it's time to launch. It's time to start putting the episodes out there and to see what kind of noise we can make. We've got these eight episodes which are going to roll out over the next four months. And that's our runway to try and attract enough financial support that season two becomes possible. In other words, we're jumping off a cliff and we're trying to build the plane on the way down. This is Chasing Remarkable, and it follows the journey of a small studio trying to bring their passion project to the world in a way that's sustainable. I sat down with Grant Peel, one of the directors here at Muse. We talked about how we got here and how we can move forward. Now it's time for you to build on our successes and failures. So let's dive in. Take it away, Grant. Well, we have the opportunity to take a film production company, one that uh, many other aspiring filmmakers have, uh, would, would they would have given everything to be on the journey that you, Patrick, have been on. That is that your film journey has taken you from a dorm room in Canada all the way to the Emmy stage. You're a five-time Emmy award-winning filmmaker, but you've not yet made the transition from client-based work, that is work that others have hired you to do into successfully being able to create something that is original and sustainable. That's the key, folks, the sustainability, because there are so many people who create original stuff, toss it up online, but they're not getting paid for it, and they're not finding a sustainable model for doing that. So we have uh, decided that we are going to introduce and bring you into this journey, where it's a journey that started two years ago, but it's a journey that still exists, and the opportunity is to lift the hood of the engine up and let you in on all of the transparencies with regard to this pursuit, the pursuit of the Remarkable Ones, finding its sustainable legs. And so each episode, we're going to talk to you about the business side of what we're doing. We're going to talk to you about the financial side of what we're doing, the stories behind production, and we're going to answer questions. That is to say that we are going to be completely transparent about the amount of money that we've invested so far, the other the other projects, many of them, before the Remarkable Ones, that we invested in ton of money and energy and effort in, and they never saw the light of day, some of which we purposefully never let see the light of day. We just kind of kept it in that, you know, that hard drive in the closet in the back of the studio where it was like, oh, did we ever do that? No, let's not admit to that because that was just that bad. Um, but we're going to talk to you about each one of those uh, moments and we're going to bring you along any successes or failures that we have in our uh, continued effort to get the remarkable ones to see sponsorship and to see uh, a life of its own. And so let me quickly explain what The Remarkable Ones is as a series, and then we'll introduce both Grant and myself, and we'll dive into how the heck we got here today. But as we look at the, the series itself, it's called The Remarkable Ones, and it's a collection of short stories of what we believe are the most remarkable people from across the globe. And these are stories that literally transport you to another world. They make you think or see differently. They're stories that can create this really deep yearning to explore all the wonder that this world has to offer. Each film follows one character on a personal journey through their own struggle to what it is they've achieved and then wraps up with the single biggest thing that they would want to share with the world. This series encapsulates everything about why we tell stories. And that's why we're going all in. We've spent the last two years and just over $100,000 getting to this point with eight episodes in our hand. We're going to put all the episodes out there. We're going to create this podcast as we go. And we're going to try and find an, a way to gather enough support that season two becomes possible. 
for me, I've got to say that, you know, I've got to believe that there is a way that stories like this, that projects you're so passionate about, can be brought to life in a sustainable way. I mean, the thought that I've spent my career learning a craft just so I can do it for others is is haunting, you know? And there's got to be a way mm. that we can create mm. our own stories. And so that's the journey you're following us on as we try and move from client-based work to bringing our own idea and our own series to life. We've got eight, eight episodes, four months, we're going to try and figure it out, and you get to follow along and join in the journey. And before we kind of drop you into where we are at today and how we got here, let's introduce who the heck I am and Grant. So, Grant, <laughs> who the heck are you? LP. So, uh, that depends on who you ask and on what day. Some people say I have an exhausted personality. Others get excited <laughs> about my passion for life. And uh, so, I came to know Patrick in uh, five on a five-year journey. It uh, started years ago uh, when I developed a man crush on still motion. Uh, Patrick, the storytelling that he and the team were doing was just beyond anything anybody else does. Because when you first start your filmmaking journey, and many out there might uh, be able to associate with this, the first thing you do is you go to the internet and you start you know, creeping on other people's work because you immediately want to be inspired and then you want to hold yourself to the aspirations of what others are doing. And so quickly, uh, the, the stuff that Still Motion did, you know, rose to the surface in a way that nobody else was doing storytelling. And, 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 and really the primary uh, storytelling that you guys were doing at that point in time was weddings, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how on earth was I getting excited about filmmaking and storytelling, watching, you know, repeated wedding films that other people were making, but it did, it just, it captured me and it had me enthralled and then this tweet comes out across my feed one day that still motion needed a production assistant in Chicago. And I live nowhere near Chicago. Um, but in that moment, I just made a game day decision that I'm going to respond to this and see what happens. And so I said, I'm available. And someone, I don't know who anonymously on the other end of the still motion, you know, uh, Twitter, Twitter account, uh, responded, you know, can you make a Thursday e evening 3 AM call time or Friday morning, 3 AM call time, depending on your perspective. And I said, I can, and they said, great, we'll see you then. And fear shot through my veins, P. Like, I mean, ice cold fear shot through my veins because I thought, what have I just done? Like, I've just committed myself to working on set with these people who I completely, you know, have such affection for in their work, but I'm going to expose myself as a fraud. Like, I have no experience, zero experience on any professional set whatsoever. And I hadn't even um, created much other than like home movies with my 5D Mark II. So, um, so I, I, I immediately tweeted back, like, you know, I don't know the city of Chicago. And I was kind of hoping for an out. I was kind of hoping that the response was, oh, if you don't know Chicago, then I'm sorry, you're not the right person for the job. Instead, the response was, uh, no worries, we're going to stay inside the aquarium all day. You don't need to know Chicago. See you Thursday. Uh, right. Uh, so just a, a little backstory. I, at that point in time was 37 years of age and was an entrepreneur living and working out of Cowtown, Ohio. And here I set on a six hour journey in my car to drive to Chicago, to be the production assistant for you guys to show up at 3am. And there was a second production assistant that day on set and he was 19 years of age. 
which is appropriate for somebody who's a production assistant. Very, very few production assistants are 37 with kids and, you know, uh, and jobs and, you know, a, a real estate portfolio and all of the baggage that I brought to set. And then the very first thing that happened is Joyce asked me to set up a tripod and I'd never even simply set up a tripod in my life. And so, you know, I just, I thought, I thought I'm going to pee down my leg in this moment. Like I'm not going to be able to handle this. Like immediately they're going to send me home in, in less than 60 seconds of being on set. Cause they're going to realize like, pal, you do not know what you're doing. But I just, I hustled and made up for any inexperience through asking the right questions to the right people and, and doing what was needed. Well, the fast track from there is I had received multiple invitations to do multiple production assistant work with that team. And so every night when we were having dinner was my opportunity to begin to try to see just how much of a dream uh, was alive within the still motion team to do anything that was unique and original. Right. As opposed to this wedding based stuff, as opposed to the commercial based stuff. And so in these conversations over dinner, I begin to try to feel you out. And then I just decided that I was going to do something original on my own and came to you, P, with just this this open invitation to be a part of something that spoke to me. And I drew a line in the sand and I'm going to do an original piece of work and I'm going to create this film and it's going to explore complacency. Why do we exchange our dreams for a scripted lifestyle? And can you know, can I hire still motion to do the cinematography and be a, be a part of this project? And you crushed hold, me when you on, said, hold on, <laughs> backstory here, right before Grant had approached us to shoot his documentary, we had just done this small, you know, commercial project. Uh, and it was, a, it was an actual television pilot for somebody that was self-funding it. And, you know, we got in the storyboards, we got the idea, we really liked it. It was, it was a really cool concept, but we showed up and, you know, as they're kind of walking us through the house where we're shooting and they're taking us through the characters and everything else, it turns out that the producer is also the lead talent and he's like oh no like this is like you're telling my story and i'm funding it and there was just all of this kind of confusion and conflict of interest that gets in the way of you know what is the actual story here and are we doing this for you or are we doing this in a way that you know is going to get kind of a, a broader reach and so we had just come out of that experience i never even saw a rough cut i never even heard what happened to the piece and so it wasn't you know the best experience and so what actually happened is you came to us and said making this movie love for you to be a part of it and i was pumped up i loved the idea certainly think that I had explored in psychology in my background and then I said okay and who's in the film and you said <laughs> I said well that would be me that would be my story <laughs> yeah and so you crushed my dreams when you said hey man nope no bueno not gonna happen and here's why and you were you know you were very considerate with regard to why that would be true and I got it like I completely understood um, but I wasn't gonna let that stop me uh, and so along with Adam Baker, uh, who produced the film, uh, the two of us sat down and, and started reaching out to people that we knew who had talent, but didn't have a deep set of experience. Uh, the kind of people who would be willing to join us in dry, you know, jumping in to a 15 passenger van and driving across the country for 42 straight days in less than 14 days notice. Um, and so we did, we put that group together and we created that film and completed that project. And, and I came back with footage. And I had put together, you know, a, a couple small edits of a couple scenes that we had captured on the road. And I shared them with you. And I said, hey, P, could we get your help editing? And your response was a little more encouraging this time. 
<laughs> yes, certainly. We, we had, you know, we had seen some of the rough cuts you've done uh, from the road. And, yeah. it, and, you know, at that point, it is what it is. And we can help bring the story right. to life, which right. is where we can right. shine. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. being on set yeah. with the director, who's also the talent, is is yeah. well, an and, interesting and challenge that, that we were going to pass on. <laughs> and, and not only that, a first-time director taking on a, a feature-length documentary. Like, I couldn't yes. even point to the 20, the catalog of 20 short documentaries that I'd completed in my life. It was like, well, what have you done prior to this? Oh, I did a 15, uh, I did 15 one day edits in a span of 30 days. Isn't that enough? <laughs> like, is that enough to trust you to do a feature like doc? So yeah, I understand. I got so, it. So since we're, you know, bearing all here, uh, uh -huh. and, and we're kind of taking people through the journey, I mean, didn't that work? Didn't you, why didn't you just keep making more movies? I mean, your journey was doing your own, Ooh, you know, you had, a, you had a background in other stuff and then yep. you, you know, you leave. So what a lot of you don't know is Grant at one point had like 73 homes and uh, he runs a whole real estate business. And, and so that's been a lot of his, I mean, <laughs> Grant's done a lot of things and we'll get into that as we kind of go through <laughs> episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, he, he, he's got all these other kind of careers that he's done and none of which have, you know, generally brought him as much passion as filmmaking. So you make this turn, you're going to make this movie, you go to Kickstarter and what ends up happening? Well, so on Kickstarter, and I attribute all of the success of our Kickstarter campaign to Adam Baker, who had um, a tremendous amount of experience within the world of online community and developing, um, you know, support around a story, which is exactly what a Kickstarter campaign is. Uh, and he also had a tremendous network of friends who all were like-minded and were very passionate about uh, the story that we had gone out and filmed. Uh, and so on, you know, to Adam's credit and the work that he had done, our Kickstarter campaign was wildly successful. Um, but no, especially no, no. What's, what's the end result? Let's well, we'll, we'll, okay. get into, we'll get into Kickstarter later as we talk about models for the okay. show. All right, the sure. result? Now, here, so you're a filmmaker. You so, put this movie so here's out the reality. And... Yeah. And the reality is that it still labors online and people still buy it daily. But, you know, it's like one film purchase a day and I'm still carrying well into the five figures of debt on the film. So, uh, you know, in the end you go, you know, it, it made a splash on Hulu for a short period of time. And we'll get into why we've withdrawn it from Hulu since then, which was a complete mistake. Um, and we have sold it online in multiple platforms. Some of them moderately successful, others completely unsuccessful. Um, and we never saw a theatrical release for the film. And so, you know, it, it, it had a bit of a flash online, which was very sexy and fun. Uh, and short-lived. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, the success that it saw is we were invited to a couple film festivals and uh, we didn't apply to any. Uh, we were invited. We'd never applied. Another tremendous, um, tremendous failure um, and mistake on our part. Um, but we had, uh, you know, a sold-out uh, premiere in Tribeca in New York City and a sold-out uh, premiere on Hollywood Boulevard in LA. Um, so there were some really sexy moments, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's often, I would attribute it to like your Facebook feed, um, on the surface, it looks really sexy, right? Like everybody puts their best foot forward on Facebook. Uh, but the reality is that there's a lot more turmoil that's going on behind the scenes as it relates to that. And so, you know, even five years later, I carry over and lick my wounds as it relates to uh, the mistakes that I made with that film. And so that's exactly why we're doing this one differently. That's exactly why we haven't overcommitted ourselves uh, in, in wanting to get this series out before we're able to find the right partner who can help us do it with health. 
um, and sustainability. So um, do I, you know, and then, and then on the flip side of it, it's launched my film career. And so, you know, where I am today versus if I had gone a more traditional path as a, an aspiring filmmaker, I certainly would not be invited to direct the types of productions that I'm directing currently if I didn't just jump in with both feet back in 2012 and then, you know, burn my own path as it relates to that, um, because it would have been a much more slow burn. Um, and I would have had to work my way up in a much more traditional way. So, so in many ways, you, know. you actually just hacked the education system and you have a lesser debt than had you gone to a three, four year film school and you're actually much further ahead. So um, in some ways, there's, you know, there's some huge positives out of it. And, and, it, and you know, I, 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 have, I have more to say about the movie and the positives and just what's important for people to realize in all of this. But um, you shared your journey. Let me kind of bring yeah, my own journey let, of how I got here. And then let's dive into some of the, the failures we've had along yeah. the way of trying to figure this out. Um, and so my journey really starts in, in university as a psychology student and just learning, you know, really powerful ideas about, um, about how the world and how people operate and wanting to bring that to people, realizing that, you know, I was probably one of the only ones who liked reading a 20 page scientific journal and all that jargon and like got excited <laughs> about that. Um, because when I tried to share it with people, they like looked at me like I was crazy. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I knew like I had to, I had to distill that in another form. I didn't know at the time that that form was story that I had to take ideas and, and, and kind of bring them into story. But I knew that there's all this stuff I was learning that people didn't know about that could help, that could make a difference. that could just brought, and awareness and and i had no idea how to bring that to people and so i met amina who's the co-founder of still motion we met in university and we started brainstorming how we could make documentaries and documentaries around social issues um and we would you know stay up late and and, and draw all these little mind maps of what the documentaries could look like and and what they would cover and who, where we'd go and all kinds of stuff having no idea about storytelling or filmmaking or any of it um, she was a university photographer at the time and a very good one. So, you know, late at night, she would teach me about shutter speed and aperture and, you know, all of the technical side. I was 18, 19 and had never really picked up a camera in my life. I hadn't done anything. It, it never came across my radar as anything I was interested in whatsoever. Um, and then my roommate's friend is getting married and the photographer gets sick a week before. And so he's like... Uh, my roommate, I don't know, I see him up every night and he's reading all those forums about cameras and he's talking about cameras all the time. And, you know, they're, they're kind of working on movies and stuff like maybe he could do it. And so we get this introduction to somebody we've never met and I've never shot a thing in my life <laughs> saying, hey, will you, you will you, you know, you interested in doing our wedding? Now, Amina was a photographer, right? Like she she didn't shoot weddings, but she was a photographer. But the offer was for five hundred dollars, we'll do both photo and and video right here's oh. our chance to actually try it and and that's that's not a you know a fabrication it was five hundred dollars for both so, oh, and no, it did, delivered did, did you all set that budget or was that what the bride and groom had available like yeah we got 500 bucks if you'll do it you know what i don't actually remember that conversation oh, okay but okay, i actually right, remember right. us being excited that we were these university students getting five hundred dollars to you know to go do this and so off i went to best buy to, you know, buy a camera that I would later return, of course. Um, you know, trying to figure out how to do audio. I mean, this first thing that we shot, I remember doing like two camera angles and there's like a Gaussian blur of the, the officiant 
in the sky, literally like in the upper corner of the other angle. Like Whoa, no like, idea. Like like an angel guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. They, like blurred oh. out the edges, put them up there. You could see both. Like no idea what I was doing. Um, but it opened this window into oh here here's a here's a path for us. We could shoot weddings. We could bring in revenue, and that's going to cover all of our camera gear. And and it was never about weddings, right? It was about stories and people and all of that kind of stuff. What what became stories and people at that time, we didn't have any idea. We were following what we knew from psychology and what was interesting to us. And so over the next three to four years, we end up, you know, getting better at our storytelling. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's understatement. And I think yeah. really for me, it was just like it was a boredom. Like I just really didn't mm -hmm. like what I was doing and so kept trying all these different things. Um, to try and make it different. And that's, you know, using the original Brevis 35 adapter to get shallow depth of field and, you know, hanging dresses from trees and doing ring shots way back, you know, way before um, a lot of people were kind of doing those things, shooting Steadicam all over the wedding. I did one wedding where every single shot was a Steadicam shot because um, I had no understanding of story or what was and wasn't working. So I just kept pushing on all the walls around me, trying to find something that would make it better. And eventually that led us to storytelling, getting to know people and, and, you know, finding what makes them different and having an actual structure to it. And then that got the attention of Canon that sends us uh, some prototype cameras. I end up taking a leap of faith and just shooting a wedding uh, pro bono with these prototype cameras with the idea that it's, you know, let's put it out there, see what happens. The wedding goes viral, gets hundreds of thousands of views. The NFL sees the wedding. They call us out of the blue, are like, hey. We want to see what your storytelling <laughs> would look like for football. Um, that leads to, you know, uh, over a hundred day shoot contract. CBS sees the work we're doing for NFL. They've got a documentary. They send us to Quantico, Virginia. And, you know, bing, bang, boom. It's like three phone calls over the se series of three years and go from university students shooting weddings to multi Emmy award winning filmmakers who are now getting calls from AT&T and Apple and Callaway and these big brands who are going, we love the way you tell stories. And so we became this, this studio who, if you wanted a really strong story that felt real with real people. So if you had half a day with Phil Mickelson, who at the time was the best golfer in the world, when we, when we did a piece with him and you wanted it to feel like a very deep, like real personal story, but you also wanted it to look really beautiful. We were the ones you would call. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of our, our, our journey. And, and that was going really, really well until you came along. <laughs> and oh, so, <laughs> If only you were not the first person to say that line to me, Pete. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we're, we're doing, we're, we're a studio of probably eight people at, at this point. I mean, we're up yeah. to, up to, I think over a dozen at one point. Mm -hmm. um, but around here, I think we're probably about eight people and I'm doing a workshop with Kevin Chahinian and Joe Simon, and it's the Event Cinema Workshop, and there's this kid in the back corner, or I guess 37-year-old man. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and he just kept having this question. You know, he kept, he kept having questions and kind of kept getting shut down as a, you know, we're going to handle the business stuff later. We're going to handle the business stuff later. And so finally, you got your chance to ask your question. <laughs> Which was right here in the back of the room because everybody knew that that you know that I would have been wanting to answer ask some question, and and I said I said you have three world class filmmakers you gentlemen you three men are, are among the the best of the event cinema filmmakers in the world when are you going to do something original. 
This episode of Chasing Remarkable is brought to you by Rode Microphones. As a small production team aiming for big results, we use Rode Boom Poles, the NTG4 Plus Shotgun, and on-camera audio to bring each episode of the Remarkable Ones to life. Rode helps us get powerful sound for our series. We're even using their podcaster microphone right now. As individuals, Grant and I were people who were always pushing. I got bored easily. I hated routine because I was always looking for how to do things better. And he was always lighting fires, so to speak, challenging assumptions on, on how we go about living a fulfilling life. When are you going to do something original? So here I was, standing in front of dozens of people, being asked point blank, when am I going to create my own content? Why haven't I taken my own ideas and brought them to life? It was this question, this question that would lead to Grant and I crossing paths as creatives and continuing forward on a long journey ahead to even reach the idea of the remarkable ones. In this section, we'll share with you some key milestones, and more importantly, failures that marked that journey, as well as how we first came up with the idea for this series. And, and the room kind of got, I mean, it was all like that <laughs> cricket, 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 right, was heard, and it was really because there was like this like hush around the room, like, you don't say that to these guys, right? Like you're the student, they're the, you know, the master and you're asking them a point blank question that vulnerable and raw and you expect them to answer right now publicly in this class. Like, right. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a ballsy question to ask or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you could see that, that Kevin was like very professional in his answer, right? And and um, Joe, you could tell, had considered it, but was gonna clearly do it in his time. Um, and But there was a spark in your eye, P, like that happened in that moment. It was like recognizable, um, even from across the room. And it was like, oh, we have a live one here. You know what I mean? And it was like, ah. So then it was like, you know, later, because we really didn't dive into it too deeply, understandably in that moment. Right. I mean, everybody kind of gave their answer or whatever, but it was, you know, you left the door open, um, in your answer. And it was like, Oh, like I'm busting through that door. And so when we went to drinks after class later that evening or whatever, it was kind of like, okay, like how, how deep are we going to get into this? Right. How, how, how much can I sell you in this one moment right here, right now? Uh, and, and I, and I remember, uh, uh, being a part of that conversation or whatever. And like, trying to, to egg him on or whatever. And it just, what it didn't, it didn't fall on the fertile ground that it fell on with you. You know what I mean? Like, it was uh-huh. like, yeah, let's go. And, and I think I, I, I want to explain that when Grant says, why aren't you guys doing anything original? He doesn't mean as in your work is imitating others, which is easy to take it that way. We're taking the context right. of this whole show. Why aren't you creating your own content? Why aren't you taking your own yes. ideas and bringing them yes. to life? And I think the, the spark that hit me that I'm kind of only realizing now in hindsight is that like, that is why I got into this. I didn't get into this. I, I never had a dream of becoming a filmmaker and shooting for other people and, you know, doing that kind of thing. I never even knew how that world worked. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was to tell my own stories. And so I think somewhere along the way, it's just like you, you, you get the call from Canon and NFL and CBS and Emmys and blah, blah, blah. And you just, you keep going. Um, you know, <laughs> you don't go, ah, well, you know, that was fun, but, um, I'm just going to go over here now. You kind of, it just was moving at such an incredible pace that you just keep riding the wave. And I think your question was that kind of spark that came out and was like, wait a minute, is, is the wave even taking you where 
you wanted to go in the first place. And so it was really <laughs> confronting. You know what? That's and interesting. interesting. It, no, and so there's there was almost a complacency that you'd fallen into in the sexiness of what you were doing, not the routine of it, right? Not like ho hum, time to make the donuts, right? Which was what I awakened myself out of was like that idea of like I'm going to do the same thing today that I do tomorrow that I did yesterday that I'll do two days from now, right? You, you it was like the sexiness of the opportunity that you were given is like yeah, who would not who would say no? to the opportunity to DP a game of honor. Like no one would say no to that in the position that you were in, but you'd gotten to a certain point where it was like, hold on, is, is the next invitation the one that I want to take? Or do I want to, you know, explore this other path over here that no one can invite me down. It's one that I have to, you know, forge for myself. So I, you know, I, I, I get excited. <laughs> Anytime somebody awakens to that idea that there's a, this inner spark that says, hold on, maybe I want to go off map for a minute. You know, and and that really, I mean, that true, that that excites me as much as story excites me. I just know that for me, that's the vehicle to help people get there, right? Is that story is going to awaken that in them? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I, I and you, you know, tell me if this is true, but the psychology of of being able to affect change in people is where your excitement for story comes, please, because you know that you can help people affect change in that way, and often you'll have a specific something that you're wanting to help them you know, uh, arrive to, whereas it's just, you know, I'm just wanting to, to kind of light a spark underneath them and just like, let them go <laughs> like fly be yeah. free. I have no idea where you should go next, right? but just go. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I learned very quickly in university that if I read somebody or recited what a study did and what it found, nobody really gave a shit. Like, and, and that's it just really, you know, like it would be the most right. fascinating thing in the world. But I was to start talking about the number of participants and the methods and how they did it and what they found and people would just tune out. Yet, if I could find a way to relate the essence of what they found to a way that like actually moved you emotionally, that like mattered to you in your life, all of a sudden people like love the idea and they wanted to know more. And mm -hmm. and that's kind of the, that that is what story can do. And, and that's why we're here doing what we, what we do do today i think for me i just get bored really really quickly or i just i always want to be like expanding doing something different and so for those first several years i was getting that like every opportunity mm. was bigger and pushing and challenging me and even yeah. though it wasn't necessarily like the direction i wanted to go but like i i was getting bored at the end of a game of honor because it's like I've now done 50 shoot days and there's a little bit of a routine. If I can't find a way yep. to do it better. And, and I, quite honestly, I was frustrating people. I was frustrating the producers and CBS and everybody else because I kept pushing. <laughs> I kept wanting right. more. I wanted to do right. more. I, you know, yeah. I mean, there was, it got very tense because I'm not good with routine and doing the same thing. It's like, great. We did that. Now, how do we do it better, different? What's the next step? And coming out of all of that, then, you know, the still motion crew had started and this is actually well, we're editing IFT, like all of this stuff. It's crazy how it weaves together. But we do a, a nonprofit piece. We do a, a thing called Old School Cafe, which was we, we were going to just basically donate our time once a year. Right. As a way of, of giving back. We're going to donate our time, tell a story. Um, and so we find this cafe. We do the story. It gets a Vimeo staff pick. It means a ton to the Teresa, the, the founder of the cafe. Um, and you know, like it, it really mattered to the people involved. So we felt great. And so 
we do that. We finish up IFT with you. And then the next year comes around and now it's the next time to do this nonprofit piece. And that's when, you know, we've been having all these conversations and everything else. And so you'd come to Portland and, you know, you were already hanging out a lot because we were editing <laughs> the movie. You know, at one point you yeah, moved that, into the studio. Yeah, that and I just wouldn't leave. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there's a tip for all of you out there. If you really want it, just don't, right, just don't, don't leave. leave. Um, but that's when we started exploring what what could we do next, right? And so I remember you were you, like we had developed two or three different documentary ideas with oh, with yeah. I you know like full uh, like graphics and, and brand oh, yeah. you know like we Flashed would have out. pitches on you know different ideas and you were out in the field in Portland interviewing makers for a documentary we were considering on makers in the Portland area yep. as a producer on our team had stumbled across a Huffington Post article about a girl using lemonade to fight child slavery. I'd authored an email to her dad going, hey, we have this nonprofit thing. We tell a story, blah, 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 and kind of sent him the pitch on what we do. And that was going to be our next nonprofit story. And so I get the response back. And I remember calling you and going like, dude, I think you need to get back studio (laughs) i i think all those other projects are done like this is it like this is this is actually much bigger than a three-minute piece this is a documentary and so we go down and we meet the family and it's everything that we had dreamed it would be and more um and we end up actually turning that into a feature-length film we're going to follow a nine-year-old girl in her journey to use lemonade to fight child slavery and just a you know incredibly beautiful story and a perfect example of how story can get you and bring you into some really dark things that are happening. Um, but that was largely funded off the backs of our commercial work. You know, we did mm-hmm. get investment, we got support, and, you know, we end up spending $250,000 on that movie. And then the festival circuit takes 12 to 24 months and we're going, we can't wait. Like it's a movie on slavery. We just put everything into this. We don't have two years just to sit on this, to hope to get into a festival, to hope to do this. We had tried Sundance. We didn't get in. You know, we sent in the rough cut at 60%, just didn't get in. And so it was like, we had our shot. We didn't do it. So now what's next? And so we got in a minivan. Um, You, you love minivans and road (laughs) trips. uh uh, Common (laughs) story. uh, How do you see a theme? 67 days across the country touring with um with stand with me and then doing workshops you know we would tour we would we would do a film premiere and a workshop and and much like uh, i'm fine thanks it had nights where we would make you know ten thousand dollars we had three right. 350 people in a theater and it was um you know we had a give what's in your heart model at the end where you could get a gift box and you could pay whatever you wanted which was an idea born out of the actual movie and vivian's story um and, and you know so we had some cities that were hugely hugely successful yet as a whole we lost money and so here yeah. we are now you know we, we we've now created i mean we've we've made a handful of movies but specifically, we made two original films. You're still carrying a five-figure debt from one of them, and the other one is just a loss. You know, both Still Motion and our investor, just like at, at the current point in time, have just lost money on it. And I think it's important to realize because people watch it. You know, I did a blog post, and we get comments, and, and people today, like, they, they watch on Fine Things, and they're very moved by it. And so they have a hard time hearing the idea, like, you know, when we talk about it being a failure. She's like, oh, no, I mean, it changed my life. <laughs> what are you talking right, about? Exactly. I buy products yeah, that, differently or it changed my career because I watched your movie. Yet, what's the reality of having to make a payment every month three years later because of your movie? 
Right. And and so then that begs the question, by what metric are you going to measure your success and your artistic success? Right. Because as as the as the creator that went into that project, your aspiration is that those who see the movie will be moved and will their lives will be changed. Right. That's the goal of me, of mine as a director. Let, let me be involved in something that's going to be so uh, instrumental that it can change someone's life. And we have countless responses from people that way. Right. I mean, like on a level that, that, you know, the kind of thing that's like my wife and I never communicated well and she didn't understand me and I didn't understand her, but we sat together and watched this movie and it has changed our life. Like that kind of level. Well, that I can't ask for anything more than that. Right. As far as the creative side of it, but it begs the question that you, you if there's, if it's not sustainable, if you're going to do that at your own expense repeatedly again and again and again to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars, it's just it, – it's not even practical, right? Beyond what it does to you emotionally, right? Like so you know, you give to these other people and then, and then you live this – you live the, the reality that you're just getting beat up again and again and again. So we have to find – a new way of doing this because we can't do it the same way. Right. So in the first one, in the first one, it was successful, but it's carrying a tremendous amount of debt, even still to this point. The second one, we eliminated the carryover debt, right? But we, there's zero profitability. So it came at a major expense and then now there's no, there's no profit to it and there's no future that can be created on the next project that came from that last one. Now the opportunity is how do we create this third one well, and, and, <laughs> that is neither of those two things? And right? there is actually there is there is, you know, we fell back into our old our old patterns. And, and I feel very fortunate for that. But, you know, we have made several other movies, Our Journey Home and The New Hustle, which is premiering in the next couple months, um, which were actually client based films, as in a nonprofit hired us True. and had a hundred and fifty roughly thousand dollar budget to make a documentary. And like it was an amazing opportunity to go, hey, here's a story we care about. We can tell it. And now we're not carrying you know, the burden. We don't have to finance it. The profitability on that is is not high. Um, right. But you're not losing money. And then it was the same yeah. with the new hustle. You know, like you're not making the profit you would if, you know, we're doing a movie for $150,000, $200,000 when we're doing commercial projects um, that are in a similar price range and, and are far less complex and take far less time. So, you know, we, we kind of found our way back into that side of things. And it was a great way to explore and express creatively and push the storytelling and, and create films. But again, it doesn't create that same future. It doesn't create that same, you know, what's next. And so I actually, I don't even remember where the idea from the Remarkable Ones actually came out of. I can see <laughs> I the, 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 the I seed can tell you. through the different content, but yet you apparently remember it. Oh, uh, so, so this is what happens. We get on the road, you and I together, to premiere Stand With Me, to do the four-walling of the theaters, as well as the Storytelling with Heart workshop. And so that meant that we would premiere the movie, we'd stay in the hotel, the next day we'd do the workshop, then we would immediately get on the road, and we would drive to the next city, and then we would premiere. And then, so it just meant continual um, opportunities for you and I to sit and just brainstorm other ideas around how do we strengthen what we're doing in workshops? How do we strengthen the marketing stand with me? But then inevitably that means that if, when you and I get together, we're going to start brainstorming new ideas. And so it was in, and I don't know why I remember this, but it was in a hotel room in, I believe it was Toronto and you had been upgraded. And so you had this like 
you know, larger than it wasn't quite a suite, but it was larger than a normal hotel room. So I had this like little living space and we're, we're sitting there and, um, probably sharing a glass of bourbon and, you know, having a good, uh, a good chat about things. And we just started dreaming about, well, what if like in a perfect world, what kind of stories would we want to tell and what format would that would take and where would it be done? And, and we just started dreaming about, well, we'd love to go back to short form work instead of needing to invest a year, year and a half worth of time in order to complete something. We'd time like it money. to be time and correct, money. right? Yep. Time <laughs> and money, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it would be shorter. It wouldn't be feature length documentaries. It would be something that was more manageable, bite size and shareable online. Okay, great. So, and, and where would this take place, right? Where would we want to do this? And, and it was like, well, we'd want to do this globally, internationally, and not just in the hotspots of, you know, Dubai and Paris and, and, you know, Berlin, all the expected large cities, but it could be done in like, you know, in the Amazon, or it could be done in, in Antarctica, or it could be done in, you know, in, in the, the hills of Nepal, like just in all of these little, you know, remote areas. And it was great. Well, what stories would invite us to tell these bite-sized stories globally that would be worthwhile and shareable and whatever. And, and it was like, well, we'd have to, you know, we'd have to find people that were just absolutely remarkable in the truest sense of the word. They would just have to be remarkable people whose story we could tell in this short form stuff. And, and it was, and you were like, yeah, the remarkable ones. And it was like, yeah, wow. Okay. Well, like let's unpack that then. Like, let's start diving into this. What would that feel like? What would it be? You know? And, and it was in that one brainstorm that the, that the, that the series itself was birthed. Now, you know, we certainly refined the ideas over time. Um, but it was just in that one conversation about what would it look like if in a perfect world we were invited to sustainably tell stories that meant something to us in the same format and in the same way that would be rich and fulfilling and would help, you know, create the change that we wanted to see from the stories that we were, we were creating. Yeah. And that was the birthplace. Now mm -hmm. you got in trouble <laughs> on that tour because you immediately wanted to start sharing these ideas with people. You immediately wanted to start working on it. And it was like, dude, focus. Like we've got this, yeah. this, this, oh, right, for sure. this workshops today. We've got this pre-existing movie and we're four walling and right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it, 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 I, I remember that conversation now, and I think what's really interesting for people to understand is the context that we are on the road teaching storytelling workshops. We're teaching our immune storytelling process, which means every day we're talking about character and character development, and story structure and everything else. So what happens in this two hour conversation is like this acceleration chamber for most people, because like we're just living in story and ideas and improving yes. with people live in the workshop. And so we actually sit down and take a moment to go, hey, what would we do? You know, in the in the span of a couple hours, we had the exact you know, structure of it's going to be single character and it's going to be a great conflict and it's going to be people who have achieved something remarkable and then what they want to share with the world. We had the entire three act structure of every episode built out as in terms of the, the, the archetype of the series itself. And, and it definitely wasn't the right time. Um, you know, <laughs> when in, is in it? every, honestly, when is it the right the time? Yeah. Um, right. But I think it also took a lot of the other learnings that we'd had, which is, you know, you also need to get people to see the work. And and it's hard with a movie because you need to put it out there for people to see it. But once you put it out there, it's hard to get people to actually fund and support it unless you're doing a rental model. But even like it's, it's a hard game to play because you need an audience if you're going to just put out a movie and get them to, you know, rent it. People feel like. 
Hulu or Netflix or Apple is like this holy grail if I just get onto these platforms, but it's a myth. Unless you drive people to that, in many cases, it doesn't work. Now, if you can get on a top 10 list or, you know, everything else, but it's still about the distribution and the marketing of it. It's about getting people to watch it. And so what was so appealing about these is they'd be smaller, meaning we could fit them in with our travels. So here we are doing, you know, a series of Canon workshops across Asia, and I actually tell them, hey, we've got our own original series. I need two days in between countries. We're going to find and tell a story. And like, that's how we started it going is just planning in our productions. And then we were like, okay, so we've got two days in Vietnam and we've got two days in Malaysia. And we would just as a team start researching and trying to find all the possible characters we could. And it was like, what, (laughs) what is the best story we can tell about a single person who's got something remarkable to share? And that that's really, you know, over two years span is how we got the first season done. Just finding the nooks and crannies and in always listening for stories and opportunities of, you know, who and where we might be able to film. And so a lot of them are done on the backs of commercial work and we're overseas or workshops or something else and finding these opportunities. And and that brings us to now, right? Yeah, where we've and got... it's, it's very much like the Robert Rodriguez School of Filmmaking. Right. So El Mariachi, Robert Rodriguez, who, who, you know, this is this is pre uh, digital filmmaking back in the in the days of 16 millimeter, you know, actually shooting on film and creating a a piece. He did a feature length film for seven thousand dollars. Okay, end to end, an entire movie for seven thousand dollars. Now, that meant he did everything. He was he was DP. He was director. He was the scriptwriter. He was, uh, you know, AC. He did every role imaginable. He might have had a buddy who um, who who had a uh, audio recorder, but they would also do like sound pickups after the scene was completed. But his ideology and his his fundamental difference between what he said that Hollywood was doing and how we've approached this entire series is he said in Hollywood, they write in the script that the scene opens in a blue jail. And then they go spend $100,000 creating a blue jail. Instead, what Robert Rodriguez said is take every available asset that you have, put it down on a piece of paper and write your script to include the things that you already have available to you. So they come at no additional expense. Well, that's very much how we started the remarkable ones was we went, wait a minute, instead of going, oh, there's this incredible story halfway around the world. And we need to send a team of five over there to spend two days with this person to capture their story and come back. Why don't we just take advantage of the pre-existing blue jail, right? Which was the trip to Asia that already existed. And so, you know, P is very smart in, in being able to identify those moments that you go, wait, we don't have to leverage and go to great expense. We can just leverage opportunity and being mindful of that you know, at all times for a period of two years. And, and that and really, that, that gave several people on our team the same experience you did as PA in terms of walking on set and having no idea what they were doing. You know, Catherine, who's our story strategist, comes from an education and, and teaching background, not a filmmaking background. But here she is in Asia helping us teach in Vietnam and Thailand. And we find these stories of Zelwyn and Van and, you know, these amazing things we're going to do. And... Like you said, we're going to use the resources we have. We're going to use the cameras yep. that, that Canon has given us. We're going to use the crew we have. we got some local PAs, people that want to volunteer and help. But, like, we're keeping our costs to a minimum, and we're really writing this in as a weekend, as a break on the tour. So, like, there's, you know, 
there's not really much expenses to it. <laughs> but then that means that, you know, Catherine's on set and we're like, hey, can you set up these C-stands? And, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of logic as to why it's called a C-stand. So, you know, you can forgive her for not knowing what the heck we're talking about right. or how what it even works. Right. And, and so, like, that's that's how we've made a lot of these is just kind of bringing people in and, and super small crews with generally what i mean i don't i think actually without exception one camera you know it's like one camera we're not using wireless audio it's a boom for the interviews like super small and gritty now when you see them i think they feel beautiful but because we we, we leaned into our strengths and and we yeah. were very planned and we knew you know we knew what we were going in there to get um there's another lesson in that too p because you said that this was the weekend between workshops Right. So so what do you do on the weekend on your days off, quote unquote, is you lean into another full production in order to complete this, which, you know, is is pretty intense uh, on the surface, but it means that much. And if that's what it's going to take. Then you're going to do it regardless of the idea that you could have just taken two days and, you know, uh, enjoyed uh, foe and had a, a blast, you know, walking through the rainforest. Yeah, but instead, that, that, that makes like no sense to me. That, in, no, no, that right? makes no sense to me. Like, I, I can hear the words you're saying. I can hear the idea <laughs> that, like, oh, you could just take the weekend off. But take a moment and go, okay, so you've got this opportunity that a company called Canon Camera is going to hire you to do workshops across Asia. And while you're there, you've got the opportunity to take two days in every country and, and just go and live your dream project. And it's going to cost you next to nothing, like producing access location fees. And you can just go and you can do and you can build that. You're going to have the camera, you're going to have the crew, you're going to have the opportunity. Do you want to do that or do you want to go have foe? Oh, no, by the <laughs> way, by the way, when you do these stories, they will for forever, like, stay with you. The lessons and the people will never leave you. You're going to get to go to a whiskey club with a magician. And while you're having your flight of whiskey, he's going to perform magic tricks to get the chef, the actual chef, to come out and watch because he's so amazed that somehow his watch has just disappeared and it's on the hand of the magician. He's going to have the server, like, bowing, going, oh, my God, sir, I didn't believe, I didn't believe, but now I do. You know, like, just life-changing experiences. Or... Like you said, or you could, I could you have could go shopping. You could go shopping at the mall, man. You know what I mean? Like so, you might miss that. The trinket shops are really pretty cool. That's where it makes no <laughs> sense to me because this, this, you know, yeah, a whole world opens up when you tell stories in this way, when you tell your own stories, when you explore things that you care about, you, you meet people and you learn things that like the storytelling process changes you just by being exposed to these people who see the world in a different way. And it, and it is that, that experience that you hope to be a conduit for to bring to your audience, right? It is my experience hanging out with Zelwyn the Magician and the, the sense of wonder and awe that I felt that I hope the audience feels as they watch his episode. But we have to remember that, like, we as the storytellers actually get to experience that shit for real. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Why would I want to go to the mall? Right. No, I know. It's in the fabric of who we are, right? It just yeah, it sets in on you, which makes it addicting and it makes you want to do it again and again and again, which brings us to the idea, how are we going to do that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> how are we so going to do that, Pete? This episode of Chasing Remarkable is brought to you by the Academy of Storytellers by Story and Heart. If you want to create films like the episodes in this series, the Academy has great content geared towards making a large impact with a small crew. 
They also have an incredible community where we can lean on each other. And hey, this podcast was shaped by what we learned at the Academy. Welcome back. This is where we're going to start addressing the tough questions and getting really honest with the practical challenges of creating your own content sustainably. Before the break, Grant and I had just finished a two-hour conversation about what we would create together in an ideal world if all factors were in our favor. And we had laid out the structure for bite-sized stories of remarkable people from around the world, aka the origin of the remarkable ones. Now the million-dollar question, quite literally, is how do we actually do that? As in, how do we sustainably fund this series? Because this isn't an ideal world, and we definitely don't have all of the factors in our favor. From Kickstarter campaigns to sponsorship models to gaining viewership, in this next chapter, Grant and I talk about some of the pros and cons of different funding strategies we considered, what success would take, and how we ultimately plan to move forward with this series. So, so we've gotten here by being scrappy, by leaning right. into our strengths, by taking yes. advantages of you know where we are, what we can do, and, and really keeping costs to um, a minimum. We've got a collection of eight episodes. Uh, and, and before we brought it to life in similar to our, our documentary mentality is like, how do we get support before we bring it out there? Because as soon as you play an episode, it's hard to get somebody to support it. Right. They want, you know, if you're going to have their logo in or they're going to help, like they want a say on where it goes or um, they want their logo in it and stuff like that. So we've been kind of shopping it, if you will, showing the idea to people and considering different options. And one of those, one of the first things, and probably what is going on in a lot of, you know, our listeners' minds throughout this whole thing is, why yeah. don't you just do Kickstarter? Yeah, come and, on, fellas. And, like, it's been successful for how many others? Why wouldn't you just go there? It's a watering hole. Go drink. Well, and, and you were incredibly successful, right? Like, you you have some some uh, awards <laughs> from Kickstarter, yeah, if you will. Uh, yeah, in a you way. Guys, yeah, you guys, in a way. at the right, time, had sent sure. some benchmarks, didn't you? We did, yeah. we, we it, Our campaign had the largest number of people who had supported a documentary uh, on Kickstarter at the time of its campaign. So no other singular documentary had more supporters than ours. Uh, now, others had raised a tremendous amount of more money than ours did. Uh, you know, we used the Lewis CK model. For $5, you were going to get a CRM-free digital download. Like, you know, we wanted to try to get this out and have as many people see it as we possibly could. And so we were very appreciative of those people who chose to support us. And clearly, the community around bronies, right, adults who like My Little Pony, um, was much more compelling than than, uh, than ours was because they raised like 300 and some thousand dollars online. Now, we raised $116,000, and that is nothing to sneeze at. I'm so appreciative of that, and, and um, you know, and, and I have a, a real – uh, affection for the campaign that we raised and the amount of people that supported us and 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 the support that they've given us financially, but also even more so just the encouragement that it resonated with them and that, you know, they were sharing the movie with other people. So yeah, I have a history of having run a successful Kickstarter campaign. I also watched and participated in the amount of work that went into that campaign. And I cannot understate enough just what sacrifices Adam Baker made in order for that campaign to be successful. And he was tremendously savvy and and most Kickstarter campaigns. And I think this is where, you know, uh, a lot of aspiring artists aren't, you know, fully recognizing the idea that most successful Kickstarter campaigns are um, run alongside pre-existing communities that are already compelled to want to support the kind of project that you are engaged in, as opposed to 
you know, this is my first foray into this thing. And I have, you know, three dozen friends and family that are going to support it. But I'm hopeful that my Kickstarter campaign video is so compelling that it goes viral and that, you know, people feel compelled to support it. That's just not the reality. The reality is you need a pre-existing community that you can reach out to and communities, plural, ideally, that are going to want to support the work that you're doing. And so, um, you know, with that in mind, the other part of what we recognized is that that works very well for a singular project. So if we were going to do another documentary movie, I would give a lot of consideration to going back to Kickstarter as a method of creating the seed money to get that project started. But when it's going to be a series the sustainability of asking a community to support that piece becomes much more challenged, uh, you know. And then there may be the 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 odd um, you know unicorns in the Kickstarter world that have have cracked that nut, who've been able to say, "Hey, I'm going to create a series, and so we need you know your support for this." And uh, whether they're coming back with multiple campaigns or whether they're um, able to migrate that community support to something like Patreon uh, or or a, you know a subscription based model in, on their own uh, WordPress you know, blog or something like that, some kind of a, a gatekeeping pay portal. Um, maybe they, you know, that's worked for them, but it, it just becomes the, the, the reality is that you then become as much about that running that campaign and managing that campaign and community more so than you are actually creating the work that you're doing. It, you know, it, it becomes a full-time job in order for that to be successful rather than you being able to create, you know, and concentrate on doing incredible storytelling and, and, you know, if you think about the sustainability in the long term, Kickstarter just was not the right fit. Well, That's and, the, the shorter story. And I remember Ryan Koo from No Film School uh, did a Kickstarter campaign for, I believe, uh, a narrative feature. It could have been a short. Um, but one of his film projects, and he tracked the time, like, very, very specific precisely like with a, a you know one of those buttons where you like hit it every single time he was working on kickstarter and you know it, it was a full-time job but I, th I think the number was around eight to nine dollars an hour is what it worked out his campaign was very successful he was fully yep. funded but at the end of the day he was making eight to nine dollars an hour and and the reality is for us like if we're gonna make eight nine dollars an hour trying to get kickstarter we're back to why don't we go do client work? Why don't we do client exactly. work and funnel the profit? And the problem is it's just not sustainable. And to your point, like there, there is no magic bullet here. Even if you do Kickstarter, you still have to get people in front of it, which is the same challenge you have if you create the content. And since we're creating a series of content, it's about we need to get people in front of it because if we can get viewership. Then we have options, you know, and, yep. and we also considered patreon which is becoming more popular and if you're not familiar with patreon it's basically um where patrons can support you people who enjoy your art and they can support creators and it's more of a subscription model so think of it like kickstarter but the the creative actually exists and it's on an ongoing basis so for writers or bloggers or filmmakers you could get people who would support you by going hey we'll give you two dollars or five dollars a month or five dollars an episode right so we evaluated that going maybe maybe people would pay five dollars an episode to support the the podcast and the content and everything else but I've got, you know, I've got friends who are doing Patreon and they're getting $100, $150 a month after months on the platform, you know. Right. Um, and yeah. the reality is, if you actually think about human behavior, we're, we're back into like nonprofit land where we're going, okay, so here's this thing that's totally free to you. You can read my blog or you can, you know, watch these episodes. You can watch the remarkable ones. They're totally free. But will you pay? Like, just it's, because it's, you want to support us. 
Right. It's NPR radio. Right. I listen to NPR all the time. I love it. I dig it. And then, you know, and it's free to me. And but, you know, it's several cycles a year. <laughs> they spend days where, you know, every personality that's a part of NPR radio comes on and says, OK, it's pledge week and we need your support. And, you know, for the next hour, we have, you know, Sally and Jim Hale, who are going to match your dollar, dollar for dollar, up to $5,000. We need your, right? And then they try to do value add, you know, for a for a donation of $50 a month, we're going to give you, and they, you know, invite you into the special uh, invitation-only opportunities, which is, you know, where you need to be if you're going to do Patreon successful, right? You'd need to have some kind of a paywall, and we'd have to do a value add, uh, in, in an entirely separate group of, of um, either education or behind the scenes or Q and a or right. You have to get creative with regard to what can we offer somebody if they're going to support us with their extra, and you're creating extra work for yourself as well. That's outside of the scope of the original work that you want to be doing. So it's counterintuitive to well, why we got into it in the first place. And back to client work effectively, you, right, you know, exactly. you've got a ton of clients, but is this really what you want to be doing? And for, you know, for us, we have uh, our app that we are very passionate about and we invest a lot in and, you know, that's already a subscription model. So we don't ask people to like try out our software and then also come and subscribe to a series and figure out how we add that extra value. And then we have storytelling education too. So like, if you want to come and hang out with us and, and, and kind of get involved in what we do, like that's what we want to get you involved in. So we don't want to make a whole other uh, portal. And we simply realize that the psychology of it is to simply open up and allow people to, you know, give us two to $5 a month is never going to work on the scale we need to actually bring eight episodes a year to life. If, if you're trying to create something where you need 500 or or $1,000 a month to, you know, do your, your blog posts or create some content, then it's a very viable solution with, you know, again, significant work, but it just doesn't feel right at the scale we need because again, we're off like we're running a Kickstarter campaign. Now we're thinking about all the extra value and how we're gonna get people to subscribe and it becomes a distraction from the actual content and the experience we're trying to create. Which then brings us to our current focus, which is the sponsorship model. So the idea on how we're actually going to bring this to life is trying for more of a, and, and I hate it in, in the sense that like it is so traditional, um, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's about how do we get viewership? Because if we can get enough viewership on the podcast and the actual series itself, then the eyeballs give us a value we could return to sponsors who will say, sure, I will support you. You know, and so right now we are uh, we've spent just over one hundred thousand dollars making the first episode. That's including, you know, the, the salaries that, that, you know, the company would pay the team members to shoot, plus location fees, plus any kind of other expenses we've had. So eight episodes across the world, we've spent about $100,000. We brought in just over $10,000 in revenue, um, and we've got a sponsorship package right now where people can sponsor for free, meaning they just support the series, and we um, share how we use what they do to make the series. And obviously, we're only, you know, we're only contacting the people that we actually use to make the series for that. Um, there's a $10,000 sponsorship option where you get an episode sponsorship, so you're listening on the website, but then you also will get mentioned inside the podcast and then you'll also be um you you'd have your logo in and around that episode and then there's a series sponsorship which we've currently got at twenty five thousand dollars now if you add those numbers up there's one series sponsorship right if you're if somebody's going to do the main sponsor they want to be the only one you know a canon or something that's not going to come in and want to share the stage and pay that much for it so if you actually look at that though 
you go, okay, well, we've aired two episodes as a pilot, so we have six left. If we sold all six, that's 60,000. And if we did a series sponsorship of 25, that's 85,000. If we ran the table, we lose money. And, <laughs> and we're not going to run the table because we're launching on June 13th. And we don't right. have somebody who's ready to invest in that episode. Our next one's Shane Hurlbut, which, you know, I'm optimistic about because he's a Hollywood cinematographer and we're talking to filmmaking companies. But, you know, we're very quickly going to be down and, and, and the there's going to be a diminishing return on the series sponsorship because now there's not even, a, you know, there's less episodes left in the series. And so who knows? We might end up with $20,000 and an $80,000 loss. Um, but the, the idea is to get as many to get this out there as much as we can if we can get views and we can demonstrate views among certain groups of people if we can get our filmmaking community really interested in this series and this podcast then all of a sudden companies go oh that's that's worth me supporting if 10 people show up it's not really worth ten thousand dollars for a kessler crane to go yes we want to support that um however if a hundred thousand people show up an episode um very different right and and so it's really we're back to the same idea in all of these different things it's coming back to viewership and ideally engaged viewership people that are you know relevant to the uh both really connecting with the content so not just like clickbait or just like watching a couple seconds but they're connecting with the content and then they're relevant to the the demographic of the people we're talking to absolutely and season one becomes a loss lead right it, it creates the sustainability of season two because the idea isn't to recover the money from season one as much as it is, how do you get into season two? Because even if you recover the money, that's you still have to then put the money out for season two in a way that you know that that runs the same risk of it not being successful. So if you can create enough viewership in season one, then you can create the opportunity for someone to be involved in season two, and that those numbers can be you know we can just add water because once that community is is engaged like you know i see this as an opportunity to engage with you know luxury travel brands is what comes to mind right uh go go somewhere remarkable meet remarkable people do remarkable things you know that kind of an idea um as an extension of the piece and so you know someone like a, a land rover or, or a mercedes or a um you know uh I don't know. Give me some luxury airline that comes to mind. That, I, I thought that, Expedia, and it's not luxury. That's a great one. But they love, you know, the travel, the exploration, the adventure. It, I dig it, right? So, you, so someone like that coming on board could say, "We want to underwrite two the, your next two seasons of this stuff," right? I mean, because the the quality of the programming that we would be giving them for the rate that we could offer them, especially you know, season two, um, would be remarkable. Uh, and so I'm really hopeful that someone, you know, comes across this piece, much like the NFL network came across your wedding work, sees this and goes, Oh, this is a tremendous opportunity for us to, 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 you know, here's my favorite analogy, be peanut butter to your chocolate and right. And, and partner in this, in this series of storytelling. However, the one thing that I would recognize, and I feel like there's a need to, to acknowledge this is that I don't believe that we've done a good enough job of knocking on enough doors. Like, I don't believe that we've gotten this series in front of enough brands yet to even feel like we've begun to exhaust that. You know, when you hear that, you know, and I don't know how much of this is folklore and how much of this is is based in reality. But when you hear things like J.K. Rowling, you know, put the book in front of 100 publishers or 200 publishers before one said yes, you know, we certainly have not put this series in front of 200 brands 
that are of a global scale and large enough that they could immediately commit to this thing and write one check and say, yes, your dreams are greenlit. Right. Like, I feel like that's the thing that we need to do as I- I- alongside everything else that we're doing. Yes, and certainly there, there, there is. And, and that's part of starting to put them out there is getting them in front of more people and also just needing to get everything done. You know, like as in we have to get all the episodes done and then we have a collection. And, you know, all of a sudden in the past two weeks, as we said, this is when we're launching. This is what we're doing. We now have a whole, you know project overview and we've got a marketing plan and we're finishing all the episodes and we've got a screener page where you can see all the episodes and all these things that now are giving us that ability to go out and do that. And and we've tried, I mean, we have pitched, but we were more pitching the idea and and you can pitch the idea at a lower price point to people who know you, right? And like, I mean, that's exactly what Rode said when I talked to Rode microphones, you know, um, Scott, who was the head of marketing at the time, said, like, look, we've done a ton with you guys, and this sounds really interesting. So for $10,000, we're totally in. We can take the risk, and that works. And so they were the first ones that actually committed committed to you know supporting the series to the tune of $10,000, but it's like we had an established relationship, and the risk wasn't high. When we go up to $100,000, and for me, it's like it's Dove. I, I see Van's episode and how she challenges the paradigms of beauty and go like, Dove right. would love to support that. But us going to a brand like of is you know it's too much risk for the potential of you know hundred thousand views that's not going to do it and so we then also start seeing the upper benchmark which is an average of a million views if we can average a million views an episode we can start reaching outside of the filmmaking community and we can actually have conversations with the land rovers and the doves we think we hope i mean (laughs) right that's that's conjecture right yeah and it's and i would equate it to the piloting that we've attempted with some of the television networks where i've had conversations with people and they love the cinematography they love the the stories that that we've shared with them but we're an unknown because we don't have a book of pre-existing television programming that they can invest in right so it's like well we need you to partner with a pre-existing production company we need you to go alongside somebody who's already done that. Where, whereas if we can say to someone successfully, no, look at what we did in season one, then we have the benchmarks that they can totally with confidence invest big dollars in season two. And so that's that's really the journey that you are following us on right now. And I mean, we're, yep. we're open to anything. We are, you know, we're taking ideas. <laughs> we are, right. you know, it, it's Left not saying right. that we won't pivot. But the goal is we've got these eight episodes. Two have run. The two pilots have gotten uh, about five million views overall. So great that's response That's not so insignificant. Far, right. Getting yeah. picked up by different media outlets. We have to now continue to see success at that level and continue to get it out in front of people, trying to get support as much as we can this year and look at how do we actually get people to back creating another series before it's too late before we're, so what's we're ahead dead. what's ahead what's next what's coming out next this episode of chasing remarkable is brought to you by whipster a video review and collaboration platform we use whipster for every episode of the remarkable ones to help our team with different schedules and different locations all stay on the same page Quite simply, Whipster helps us get to picture lock in far less time.
As we charge forward to the last chapter of this podcast, this is where we actually dive into the first episode being released of The Remarkable Ones. We've shared with you who we are and how we got here. We've shared where the idea for the series came from, and we're all well aware of the many challenges that lie ahead for us, as well as what's at stake if we don't hit our goals. Now, our first remarkable one is a guy named Jason Zook, who made a million dollars from wearing other people's brands on his t-shirts. In these last 20 minutes, we'll give you an overview of Jason's story, and we'll answer two big questions our community members are always asking. How do you find a remarkable person? And how do you actually get this person on board with your project? Not only on board, but how do you actually get them genuinely excited to collaborate with you? So we, this podcast is coming out right before the actual official launch of the series, the first you know um, episode, which is episode three, because we had two pilots. Um, but okay. on June 13th is Jason Zook. And man, this guy... Jason Zook, yes, Z-O-O-K, and he is, he is somebody that just spending time with him, like, makes you more creative, <laughs> you know, like, just so many amazing ideas and so giving and sharing and, and a willingness to help, but Jason Zook is a man who made a million dollars wearing other people's t-shirts, you know, he had, he had come up with an idea of, I'm going to escape the nine to five job, but I want to do my own thing. And somehow the idea hit him that like people will wear branded shirts, right? And then they'll effectively advertise for other people. So why couldn't he do that? But he would charge and he would make a video every day talking about the shirt and that kind of thing. And so it'd be a dollar on the first day and $2 and, you know, $3 on day three, all the way up to 365. And so that was the original idea. And it ended up like really picking up steam and he sold out, I think over half the first year and this thing grows and grows and he ends up hiring professional t-shirt wearers. Like he grows his team. Um, but what he finds and what a lot of us as creatives find is that he, he had, you know, escaped the nine to five to do and follow his passion running his own business, you know, being an entrepreneur, yet then he ends up in this, what he calls a dungeon around himself where he's got all this massive credit card debt and he's got all these employees and he's got to be making a video every single day about the shirt he's wearing and he's got to be happy, you know, and there's just no room for like where he's actually at and how he's feeling. And so that's, that, that's the episode pitch, you know, <laughs> that, that is who this guy is. And then, and then what happens from there when, you know, when this unbelievable stuff happens, he's getting international media attention, but then it all kind of comes crashing down and he's left going, am I anything more than this? You know, am I just the t-shirt guy or do I have something else in me? Can I build something that's going to be more nourishing? Can I build something in a sustainable way? <laughs> Oddly enough, very resonant with, with our story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, parallels. I dig it. I dig it. So how did you find Jason? Yeah, and I think this will this will probably be a theme that we touch on on every single episode because people love, you know, you see these fantastic, remarkable stories. And the first question is like, how the heck did you find these people? And so I think that's definitely something we want to touch on every episode is like that origin story of how they came to us. And uh, Jason is actually um, I was working on something really late at night and researching some marketing ideas, concepts, things that I had heard about, right? So just doing some online research. And that brings me to a website called uh, buymyfuture.com, which, you know, uh, mildly interesting, just that yeah, idea, right? Hmm. right? Yeah. And so I'm reading down, and it's this guy who has sold his future, and um, but the, the sale is now closed, so you can't get in. 
<laughs> but he's talking about why he did it and what it is and everything you get and everything else. I'm just like, this is this is interesting. Um, and now remember, we're always listening for stories for the remarkable ones. So, you know, this is happening in the background. We've only done a couple episodes at this point, but you're always kind of listening for who could be a great character. So I read a little bit more about him. Learn about this whole T-shirt thing, the million dollars, you know, all of the different things he's done. I'm like, this is a guy who's got a lot to share. He has got some very remarkable things to say. And so I just like literally in in the moment <laughs> at eleven thirty at night go from landing on a page called buymyfuture.com, reading his story, assessing the the you know character strength and the opportunity in the story, hitting the contact button, and what he said. And, and this is, you know, I largely attribute this to why we got the story. Mm. But, but Jason asked on his contact page what your first job was. Um, and as opposed to just like, you know, the message, one of the questions he asked you was, what was your first job? And so, uh-huh, I'm a storyteller. Give me an in. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Um, Invitation and, accepted. And, and my first job was uh, working at a gas station. You know, it, it was it was uh, it was the idea of selling lemonade in a gas station behind my house. Sorry. Um, and I could walk there through the backyard and, you know, lemonade for a dollar. And I shared with him the story of this gas station and lemonade and the conversation I had with my mom around, you know, joking that I'd want to work at the gas station and her being so overly supportive of, you know, if that's really what I wanted and that's really what made me happy, then she had no problem with that. But that it was like, you know, what are you passionate about and what do you care about and and how that gave me so much support to really find and do what, you know, I wanted. And then I, I mirrored that into his story and, and what I'd seen in him and, and his struggle to kind of find what he wants versus doing what is expected of him and how we would, you know, now I've come to this point where what I'm passionate about is story and telling stories like his. And so I spent a, you know, a good amount of time writing the email mm. to him and uh, the next morning. Like, yeah, let's do a call. I right, love it. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, crazy. it's remarkable how much success you have in the, your approach to emailing people, um, approaching people and getting um, general acceptance in such a short period of time because of your use of story in email and contact forms. Uh, job applications, you know, things of in in all of these other, you know, um, expected structures of communication, but you layer on story on them. And so as a result, you have so much more success than just the normal dude, people, you know, and we say this all the time, but I don't think people really get it on like a deep, you know, in your cells way is that like we teach storytelling, we talk about storytelling and people just think it's a it's a film thing. Like when I work for my clients and I make my content, that's like where story is. But that is like the biggest mistake you could make in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like story is everywhere. And and we use stories, real, true stories to, you know, get access to locations or to get access to characters, to get people to connect to pitches and ideas and whatever else. And so we are constantly developing and telling, you know, the best story we can so that people go, oh, wow, I really like this series. I would love to, you know, give me two days of your time like it's not a small ask for somebody who's busy like jason zook or you know that kind of thing um but that is often how a lot of these have happened is there's no warm lead there's no a friend of a friend it's we found them we find their contact email and we write one hell of a story that you just you you might not agree to but you can't not reply to right and you cannot (laughs) not have that conversation and that's kind of where we start and then you know it's just a very open transparent 
um, process from there where we get on a Skype call. We do a pre-interview for 40 to 60 minutes. Um, I think I might even still have Jason Zooks recorded, um, but, you know, do an, an hour long call. And, and that's both ways. Like that's we're interviewing him to go. Are we going to commit the resources? And he's interviewing us going, do I actually want to give you the time? And then we come back with that and we go through the, the Muse process in general, like, you know, keywords. And so that is the only approval they have as a client, quote unquote, is, you know, we agree on the keywords. So we agree on the the, the purpose or what we are actually going to say, because these are very different people and some of them are very sensitive issues. And, you know, the last thing we want is to do these passion projects and bring a story like Jason's to life to have him go. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about yeah, that or, no, or yeah. I, I really don't like this angle. Um, so we bring people in on that process and get them excited. And what I love, what I almost almost more than the actual like filmmaking process is when we share the keywords, right? So these are five words we use to express the story. And so when you're doing somebody's personal story, these are five words to express them, right? And I love it when you get on the phone and you're like, here's the keywords, you walk them through them. And their first response is, I couldn't have said it better myself. Like you mm. understand me like better than I think I do it sometimes. And you get some variation on that kind of response, but like, that's what you're going for is that level of understanding of who they are, what they're about, the journey they're on. And when you hit that, you get such an incredible trust and it's like, great, you know, like let now go ahead, bring that to life. Um, and we will, we will then create our character brief, which we're not sharing with them because you know they're obviously the heart the main character of the story and then we'll create the storyboards and depending on the episode we will sometimes bring people through the storyboards if they've got some kind of filmmaking experience um if you've heard of shane hurlbut he's done a couple films you know so we're gonna walk him through him and lydia through the storyboards whereas zelwyn you know our magician friend in malaysia we didn't go through storyboards. He, he agreed on keywords and it's like, great. Now, like the trust is there. Um, but that's really, you know, that's the process is in some way we find a story. We just reach out directly with an incredibly powerful connecting story that gets them interested. We do a pre-interview. If it's greenlit, as in both sides think it's a good idea, we go through keywords and then storyboards and whether we keep those for ourselves or whether we share them depends on the character. And then we're into production and it's, you know, two to three people, one camera generally going for a lot of them are shot on the Epic because then we can punch in and we've got the options and, you know, just mm -hmm. great with, with not having as much time to light and giving you room and post. Um, but this is not a massive crew size or production. We're shooting in three days is kind of our, our structure. One day is the, like their in-person research, walk the land, meet everybody, have drinks, whether it's, you know, wine, beer, bourbon, whatever, but like just a very personal intimate, like, let's just hang out before we actually do this. Um, and then into production, two days of production. And we've done every, every episode thus far in that structure, more or less. Um, and so you can see that's how we can certainly keep the cost down is having a crew of three and basic gear and shooting it in that kind of timeline. And, and did anything wild happen on filming these different episodes? I mean, is, is this like ho-hum expected, you know, filmmaking or is this is it full of challenge and intrigue and, and interest and that kind of thing? Well, I think every story definitely has completely different um, anecdotes to it. 
you know, the, the two pilots were released were Dave Jack of the quadriplegic who reached for the sky and the elephant whisper of Chiang Mai on Lek. Um, and I mean, for Lex, I can remember being in the middle of a herd of elephants shooting on a C-100 handheld and the rain just started coming down like pretty crazy and I didn't have anything to cover the camera. Now, Lex is going under the elephants like the, the elephants treat her as a child, right? <laughs> like an umbrella. Like, so like, they're, umbrella. they're pushing her underneath to protect her. Right. Uh, they don't know me. And so, like, I'm like, I don't even know what to do. There's these massive elephants everywhere. <laughs> and and it's even like you don't you're not even supposed to move that quickly. Right. Like You don't want right. to scare or frighten and, and make them feel like you're Spooky. an enemy. And so right. she looks at me and she's like, you do need to be careful here. <laughs> like, uh-huh. this is totally cool for me. But like, you really do have to be careful. Um, and I remember that, like, somebody came in with an umbrella and just helped. And like in that moment. But there's there's these times where you just like you you kind of snap out of it for a second like you're so in the story and you snap out of it and go oh my god i'm in yeah. chiang mai and those are elephants everywhere <laughs> and like what am i doing you know um and i had that moment with with dave jacka too as i was in the uh the passenger seat of his airplane his little you know little fiberglass airplane two-seater and i'm hopping around behind him to try and get a shot and you know you kind of go this is interesting. I mean, I, I haven't really flown in planes this size, and uh-huh. this gentleman is a quadriplegic, and uh-huh. I haven't really vetted the the safety or the like anything about this. Yeah, right. I don't just know, you know. And you uh-huh. just get into this moment where you're not actually telling the story anymore. You realize that you're the filmmaker, and then he's like, you know, you might want to be careful back there. I don't know that the floor is actually meant for sitting or that it's all that thick. And again, mm-hmm. it's just like all of a sudden, you're like, oh wait. <laughs> there are yeah, walls right. and boundaries here. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So certainly, I think we're going to have some really, really interesting stories from every single episode and uh, everything else. Yeah, um, that's, uh, I dig it. So when does this thing launch? When, 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 when does the world get to see Jason's story? June 13th is the launch of Jason Zook. That will be episode three. And then we are going to follow right up the next week on June 20th with Shane Hurlbut, the very uh, inspiring true story of Shane and Lydia and how he got to be, you know, the Hollywood DP that he is and, and, and what's the biggest thing that he's learned. And so we've got two back to back and then we're going to take a slight break. We're going to do another podcast, share where we're at. Um, but the hope is, you know, again, our goal is a hundred thousand views, how we're yep. going to do that. Don't know exactly with, with Jason Zook. Um, some of the other ones like Lek the elephant whisperer, it got picked up by Upworthy, which, you know, it's a remarkable story of a woman who's, you know, says that you can tame the largest creatures with love. So right. very fitting for Upworthy or um, Dave Jacka was a Vimeo staff pick and got picked up by Positively Positive. And you can see them, you know, some, they fit in different places. Challenge with Jason Zook is like it is a, it's a USA born character and it's got more of an entrepreneurial kind of uh side and angle to it so it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see who what kind of communities and people um and media outlets we can actually get that might be interested and it's also 12 minutes like we don't constrain the episodes and go they have to be this or that which is mm-hmm. the advantage of telling your own stories right we let them be what they need to be um but we'll be the first to admit that's a struggle on social you know we're, we're not gonna yep. we're not gonna go viral quote unquote um you're not gonna get a lot of organic traffic on a 13 minute piece so i don't know i i, I feel like i want to hedge my bets since we're live here and say you yeah, know like sure. it's our first uh-huh. episode yeah um, don't play it safe <laughs> but we are you know the goal is a minimum of 100,000 views across yeah. the different platforms we're going to show them and we're going to try and get people to the website 
So we're going to, versus blasting the episodes out everywhere, we've created a whole bunch of um, teasers and trailers and social media graphics, and we're going to try and get people to come to the website. Because when they come to the website, they can, one, subscribe to see more episodes, which is our best and surest way to actually build viewership and have value for, you know, season two. Um, but then also we can give you actions and things you can do. So if you're inspired by Shane Hurlbut's story, what can you do? Or Jason Zooks, uh, the thing that killed me with, with Leck, 5 million views on Upworthy, you scroll through the thousands of comments and there are people that want to help. There are people they that want to do yeah. something and they don't know how. And so we've solved that through the web experience where every episode below it, as opposed to in the content, just has ways in which you can learn or do more, right? So you can see behind the scenes, you can see outtakes, and you can actually get involved if that issue or that character is somebody that you really connect with. So the strategy is, though, all of this other content related to each episode, trying to push people back to the website where they can view the entire story and then hopefully get engaged in a deeper way. That, and that, that's a remarkable uh, turn that not, I mean, even seasoned filmmakers miss that opportunity. Yeah, I saw um, uh, the director of The Cove uh, give a speech at a college, and that was the largest lament that he had with regard to his project is he said there was no specific way to encourage anyone to take action as a result of his film. So he had this, you know, he, he moved people to want to do something, but he had no vehicle to helping them take that action. And that, that's going to be, you know, I think that's just going to be remarkable to, to hear the stories from the people whose stories that we've shared – when they're able to come back and say, wow, do you know what happened as a result of someone seeing this piece? They came, they helped, or they, they, you know, affected change in this way. Uh, and that, you know, that's going to be, that, that's, I mean, what, what could you ask? Could you ask for much more as a filmmaker? I mean, honestly, you know, you, you, that's, that relates all the way back to that dorm room aspiration that you had. Oh, and I have, I have friends um, who used to live in Vegas who are now living in an RV kind of traveling the world. Um, and uh, Jimmy and Sandy, and they had seen The Elephant Whisperer, and they were taking, they're doing like a global school for their kids, right? And uh, they were in Chiang Mai over the holidays, and like they really wanted to go visit. Um, and, and so awesome to be able to have them see the episode, to have that affect them, and then for them to actually be able to take their kids there. And, and you know, you can imagine what that experience would be like for all of them on this sanctuary that, you know, takes care of animals and, and just how that will always kind of be a part of now um, shaping them. Um, and that's mm. certainly what you hope. And that's certainly, you've got to understand if you're, uh, if you're listening to this, that the, 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 the seductive nature of just putting the content out there because it's going to get more views, right? Like it's easier to put the full video on Facebook or Vimeo or YouTube and just go, Hey, like watch it and share it and consume it. And that's how a lot of blogs and media outlets pick it up is they find mm -hmm. it and they then run it. But what's a lot harder is to actually have some kind of say in that experience and get, you know, people interested and go, but come on over to our house and watch it over at our house. Because if you're at our house, then we can kind of make sure that if you enjoy it, we've got some other things that go along with the meal. And, and that is, is harder, but then has a much better return in that people are more likely to come back to your house. And mm -hmm. They're much more likely to do some of the other things that that might help versus five million views on on Upworthy is amazing. But would one of them know, you know, <laughs> have heard of still motion or muse storytelling or the remarkable ones? I would I would doubt not. Right. So mm -hmm. that's also part of this whole strategy is we have to look at ways in which we can get people to the site, to the experience and connected to the larger effort we're making, not just the singular 
episodes. So if somebody's listening and they get excited about Zook's story on the 13th, how can they engage with the Remarkable Ones? Well, I think everybody listening to this, you know, we didn't do a Patreon model. We're not asking you to subscribe for anything. We, we, the, the, but that doesn't mean you can't help. <laughs> um, right. And I think what really makes a big difference to us is going to be watching, watching the content. And if it speaks to you and only if it speaks to you, finding somebody else that you think is going to care about it. You know, that is the whole model we're trying to build out here is there is somebody you know that would actually be moved by this story, that it would actually help. And and it's not going to happen for every episode for every person, but you will see some of these and go, oh my God, you know, it, it, it's very easy to see with Dave Jacka, the quadriplegic who, you know, learns to fly and just amazing, inspiring story. So many people have these physical limitations or mental limitations that they're trying to overcome. And so I love the stories of people sending it to their cousin who had this accident or this person that, you know, they know that's going through this and how that story can transform things for them. And so that's what we're asking, you know, when, when we start is, is it's not about just, you know, blast it all over Facebook and just like put it everywhere as instead, like share with intent, you know, find one person who you actually think would, would be touched by this and just make a real connection and go, Hey, I, I thought of you when I saw this and I think you'd like the story. Um, and I think that's how we can actually get much more real engagement and a real audience that, that cares about what we're actually doing here and is interested in coming back next week or next month to watch again. And between now and then they can jump on the remarkable ones.org and catch the first two. Yep. Yep. Everything, pieces, right? Yep. Everything's live on the remarkableones.org. That's where you're finding this podcast right now. I hope, I think, I don't know. Actually, it might be on iTunes. Um, That's right. But you can go back to the website. Uh, you'll see the first two episodes. You'll see things that you can do and get involved in as it relates to the first two episodes. You'll see behind the scenes features. There's a whole ecosystem that, that lives around this actual um, series. And of course, if you know anybody who might be interested in actually supporting us um, in supporting this podcast, the series, the, the, the overall show, um, definitely reach out. Our contact information is on the page. And if you've got a story that you want to suggest, you know, everything is on that website. Um, so definitely take a moment and explore it. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed today. We hope you've enjoyed the pilot of our podcast, Chasing Remarkable. We hope you feel like it's really kind of brought you to the inside of what it's like to... Uh, to try and bring something like this to, to life and to make that switch from telling stories for somebody else to telling them for yourself. We appreciate you being on the journey. Thanks, everybody. This Chasing Remarkable podcast was brought to you by the team at Muse Storytelling. Our hosts, Patrick Moreau and Grant Peel, produced by Susie Alarcon, edited by Richard Percy, with story development by Catherine Giroux.